Welcome to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. This is the podcast telling you to go outside, whether that's actually stepping outside, listening to birds, fighting a wolf, whatever you got to do. Just go outside and do something fun or stepping outside figuratively, stepping outside your comfort zone, doing something new, doing something uncomfortable. Today, I want to start by talking really quick about something I could speak links about. That's right. I'm talking about Indiana Jones. As a small, young, only child growing up in Iowa, middle America, Indiana Jones fascinated me. He was this crazy adventurer. He'd go to these exotic, bizarre places that I couldn't even wrap my head around. And he would fight Nazis. (laughs) And he was awesome. He would throw the drunken Harrison Ford punches, you know, and uh, he would whip, have a whip and, you know, all that fun stuff. But point being, he would go on crazy adventures in these amazing places and to a small town Iowa guy, I could barely even wrap my head that around the fact that these places were real. Um, I'm talking about the Sahara Desert, India, these giant mountains that he would be fighting around. Um, it was awesome. I was really, really impressed by Indiana Jones. Still in. Great movie. Top 10 movies for sure. Maybe top one movie for me. But even as a kid, I could separate fiction from reality. And I never even imagined that someone could go on a crazy adventure because I hadn't met anybody that had gone on a crazy adventure or been to some place halfway around the world until about fifth grade. And in fifth grade, I remember I was at my aunt Marilyn's house and my cousin Susan, who was in college at this point, had just come home from one of these crazy adventures. Now, she wasn't fighting Nazis or getting thrown in a pit with snakes or, you know, fighting that dude who rips people's hearts out in the second one. Gollimal! That guy. But she had been halfway around the world. And we sat down in my aunt's basement and she showed us a whole bunch of pictures from her adventure and her and three friends had just come back from Nepal. Um, and so I was instantly exposed to all these ideas like climbing a mountain. I didn't think anyone actually did this. I didn't know anyone who had actually climbed a gigantic mountain, like a mountain, like a mountain, you know, Nepal has some huge ones. Some of the, in fact, the biggest in the world. (laughs) So she came back. She talked about that. She was showing these pictures of these different cultures, and I was on the edge of my seat. All of a sudden, it opened up to the world of possibilities opened up to me. Now I knew people actually did have adventures. People did go on these things. I know somebody who went to Nepal and climbed a big old mountain. It was a life-changing experience for me. And ever since then, really, my cousin Susan Noel, who is going to be the guest today, 
she's opened my eyes to a whole bunch of different possibilities. She was the first one I remember who had ran a marathon. Oh my gosh, 26 miles. That's a long ways. She was the first person to mention the word ultra marathon to me. Uh, I believe she ran a 50 miler, trained for a 50 miler. She's gone on adventures in the Sahara Desert, I think for five or six years running, uh, doing stage races. She's gone on adventures in Iceland. She is the first adventurer I ever knew in real life. She is my real life Indiana Jones. So I'm very excited to bring you the conversation today, and I'm super honored to have her in my family and to be able to call her whenever I need some inspiration. So hopefully you guys are inspired and empowered to go out and have your own adventure. So here it is, my conversation with Susan Knoll. Enjoy. All right, welcome to the podcast, uh, Susan Knoll. Um, I wanted to have you on for a specific reason, and that is because you are the very first person who was an adventurer in my life. So I, I don't know wow. if you're, yeah, I know. Congratulations. Thanks for having yeah. me. I'm excited to be part of the podcast and, um, just, you know, honored to hear you say that. That's amazing. So I don't know if you remember, but I was probably, oh man, I don't know. I don't know when this was, but I, we came out to Salt Lake City to visit you and your mom and your whole family. And you had, I think you were probably in college maybe, and you had just come back from a trip to like Nepal or Tibet or some crazy place I've never, you know, I I had never heard of at that point. Do you remember this? Right. And you showed slides. Yeah, okay. Now this all is all coming back to me. So after uh, undergrad, I decided to take off and go backpacking and trekking, um, in Nepal, so I went to the Kachinjunga region and the Everest region, actually. So this is back in like 1998, <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, I feel like I'm dating myself now. But I think um, that was just such an eye-opening adventure for me. I mean, it came the time, you know. I think um, having lost my dad about four years prior, and then kind of getting putting my head down and getting through college with that. Um, I think after I got through college, it was like, I am ready to go see some new horizons and just kind of have my eyes opened. And I think because my dad was the one who inspired me to to be a runner, you know, way back when, when I was really young. I learned at such a young age that running was like a basically the, my best form of travel before I had a driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> And then once, you know, getting through college, it was like, I really love, I think I just always was in love with book travel and um, as a way to just experience the world. And so I jumped on a trip with a friend who was going to Nepal and um, it was just, it was life changing. You know, I just thought I really want to make travel and running and movement really part of my life for the rest of my life. That's great. So what'd you guys how long were you there? Because I'm trying to remember from when I was, you know, like way, like 1998 kind of, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, not a ton of time. You know, when you're that young, I think I was like 22 or three. Um, I think three months, it seems like an eternity now. You know, I think you kind of want three months for an adventure like that. So 
the first time I went to Nepal was about three months. Yeah, we went to Nepal, and then we tacked on Thailand. Um, we went to Riley Beach to do some rock climbing then, too. So, um, But I think coming back after three months of that, my first true third world travel experience and getting up to higher altitude, I was just inspired to do more and more of that um, adventure travel. Yeah. Absolutely. And it seems like, for me anyways, every time I travel somewhere new, one day seems like three days, you know? Like, it just, right. it just yeah. seems so much longer because you're just taking it all in. There's so much new input coming in that, you know, I got to imagine three months seemed probably like a year for you. Yeah. I think actually, you know... Um, yeah, absolutely. You just see so many different things and you see people living in such different conditions. I think that it's just that you're using different parts of your brain and, you know, your your sensory, you're being overloaded <laughs> sensory-wise when you go to Asia for sure because there's just so much going on. But, um, yeah, I think that really inspired me too to see that the, we have such different problems in our country compared to other countries and I've got inspired to find ways to try to give back on a global level and continue traveling and running. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it felt like it was definitely years that I'd been gone. <laughs> and then, of course, like I wanted to extend it, which gave my mom probably a couple more ulcers. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> do you, okay, so do you, do you do, when you go out on these crazy adventures, do you tell your mom beforehand or do you just say, hey, I'm going to do this adventure and then I'm going to tell mom after I survive. Yeah, I realize now it's kind of like the little package you put presented in. Now it's um, I mean, <laughs> then I kind of would be hesitant about telling her because it was more just a travel experience. And I think with certain generations that wasn't really like, you know, um, that wasn't really credited as a good life experience. Yeah. And now I travel as work experiences. So I think that's different. And I think at my age now it just makes you know, if I can incorporate it in my, my work somehow, it just feels more purposeful to me anyway. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely had a few adventures that I probably, you know, mentioned at the last minute. Yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure I did. Because, <laughs> so. so for me, I know if I'm going camping or something and I tell my mom, hey, I'm going camping uh, by myself up in this area, she researches the area sees that there's bears in the area, and then immediately assumes right. I'm going to get eaten by a bear. Yeah, I think there's that. I think it's just saving everybody a lot of headaches sometimes. Like, you know, when you know you've got your bases covered and you've got your safety, and I think, um, you know, you don't need to be worrying somebody more than they already worry. So that's <laughs> a lot of my hesitance back in the day. So, absolutely. That's yeah. awesome. So, I, I specifically remember that you were showing pictures of some mountain you guys climbed and you had Sherpas. And this is the first time I've heard, I heard words like Sherpa or anything like that. Um, yeah. Can you explain a little more yeah. about that mountain? Because well, this honestly was yeah, the first time yeah. I realized like, oh my God, people climb mountains. That's something people do. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. And, um, yeah, so we, so the Kachanjunga area is a mountain range in the Himalayas. And when I went, it had only been open to tourism, um, I think maybe like 13 years prior. I believe it was open in like 85. Okay. We were there in 88. So 
You know, to be honest with you, there are so many huge mountains in Nepal that my trekking adventure is like pales in comparison to what a lot of, you know, really professional climbers do. So the Ketchenjunga region is where I was, but it, it, it's sort of like a no-name peak that we ended up doing, which is, you know, well, I think it was around 20,000 feet or so. But Oh, only, only was, around 20,000. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to, you know, there are quite a few over 25 in Nepal. I mean, it's, quite, it's just an amazing country. But, um, and, you know, we had a, a really skilled guide from um, Britain, Al Burgess. Al and his brother were well-known in the climbing community, you know, I think still are, but back in the 70s were. So anyway, he organized the guide, and he actually was had lived in Nepal for quite some time, and was really good friends with a lot of the Sherpas. So it really felt like it didn't feel like one of those tours that is just so scripted and, you know, hired. It really felt like the Sherpas that were with us were like family to him. And so it really, I think it made it that much more special because it felt like we were getting, you know, I think a lot of people, there's a little bit of a hesitance to take Sherpas and do these guided tours in Nepal that has gotten a lot more commercialized, um, but the but at least my experience was that they were really happy to be with us, and they were friends of, you know, our guide, and they've been friends for years, and it just felt a lot more intimate and um, just special in that sense. So, yeah, it was quite amazing. That's um, I know now, and then I went back into the Everest track. Oh no way! I didn't know that. Yeah, you can you can actually um, organize your own trip if you decide to stay in tea houses. Okay. So, or or if you're actually gonna summit, then you know you need all sorts of permits, and I think it's getting fairly overrun. But yeah, um, yeah. So but you you went up to base camp. You know, beautiful. Comp- yeah. Whoa. Yeah, I called up a car <laughs> across the base camp. Yeah. No way. How many people were up there when you got there? I mean, is it just base like a city? Full of general, and this is back in 2000, I think. So even then, you know, base camp was just pretty packed with all these generators and different teams. This was in April, and it was a pretty heavy snowfall had just come through. So um, I think people were essentially waiting for the right time to to start attempting to summit Everest. And I think a lot of that is timing. You know, yeah. so it, you really want to be skilled at reading the mountain, and I think that's what the professionals have. You know, yeah. the people who dedicate their lives to summiting these high mountains really have that. So, you, and Al Burgess is one of those people. He has done a lot of of summiting. A lot of, um, I mean, he dedicated his life to essentially living in Nepal. So he was just a wonderful guy. Wow, for our, our group. So our did, novice group. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> did yeah. he? Did he summit Everest ever? Or? No, 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 I have not done it. No, did no. did Al Burgess. Oh, did he? Yes, yes. Yeah, he did. Say, no, I haven't. I would have said that. <laughs> I probably would have known that, I think. Yeah. I, <laughs> that's something you yeah, just you decided. you probably would have known that. Yeah. That would have been something you just decided never to tell your yeah. mom or any of the family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that one. Saved that one for a rainy day. Yeah. yeah. She, would have, she would have just fell over you know. and fainted. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to tell my mom. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, okay, so eventually, I mean, you were into running then, right? Yeah, I've been a runner since I was probably 8 or 10. Whoa. Yeah. Well, I knew you were a big yeah. into swimming My, during high school and college. and 
you're kind of yeah, my, you're I was kind always of my... running alongside that just because I liked it. I mean, I just honestly, I think I got into running for reasons of of just um, being a busybody kind of as a kid and needing to go somewhere. And my poor parents, you know, <laughs> they're going to drive me everywhere. Oh. So I started running, I think, really as a way to just travel around the neighborhood and kind of explore. Wow. Um, and then my dad was really good about encouraging um trail running at a young age so i started doing a little bit of that with him and just loving that you know pushing yourself up a mountain there's nothing better than that okay so this this is perfect because Lindsay Lindsay just walked in with our two daughters and they just snuck into the bathroom but one thing we really wanted to ask you is how do we raise awesome adventurous daughters like i have two little (laughs) girls and i want to know how to make them awesome Oh, that's so sweet. Well, when I was with Harper last, um, I love it that we found that little baby turtle. She was definitely into that little adventure. Oh, yeah. She loves trail running. Like, we have a song now. If we're hiking down the mountain and we start running, we sing this stupid song that's like, running down the mountain, running down the mountain. (laughs) And she loves it. She'll run the whole way. Yeah. So, I think just keeping it positive and just encourage. I mean, I think definitely it's important for parents, obviously, to instill like some, you know, caution that you do need to take precautions to be safe when you're out in the wild and running and all that stuff. But I think that it's really important for kids to remember that there's um, there's so much nature and wild out there to be explored. I mean, in discovery, and I think that is something that even a lot of adults lose really pretty quickly about kind of going out and discovering, even in your own environment, going for a run. Sometimes you might take a couple new roads where you discover something new. So I think it's just that, just, hey, let's look what's around that corner. This is something new. We haven't walked home from school this way, or we haven't, let's take this new trail and see what we find. I just think that kind of curiosity in children is just endless. And I think um, I think that's part of why, I stayed a runner my entire life because I think it, you know, when you're having a horrible day or whatever, go for a run and just see something new. I think it helps a lot, right? That's awesome. And I mean, if you ever hike with a two-year-old, you are kind of in awe at how fascinated they are at every little thing. She'll pick up a stick yeah. and just look at a stick for one minute, and then she'll hear an airplane, like airplane, airplane, and she's just completely fascinated with all the aspects of everything around her. It's it's pretty cool to see. So, and there's so much going on around us that I think as adults we sort of we you know to we're get used to our work to. days and we we can't really pay attention to all that all the time. And so I think actually devoting some time to just like kind of be free in the world and see what's going on around you. It's just like really priceless to have that. And especially in the family, I mean, you guys are doing an amazing job to even be thinking of that, to wanting to raise your kids that way. I think that's great. Yeah. Did you, (laughs) did, did you ever go on some adventures with your parents where like maybe it was camping or hiking or snowshoeing or something where you're just not having a good time? No, not me. I was all over that. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. So, because I'm worried, you know, I know it's going to happen. Not camping. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we were camping, it was always fun for me. I think other adventures, maybe not so much, but yeah. Did they, like, strategically plan it so it wasn't going to be at a weekend that rained, or was it rain or shine? 
Oh, that's a good point. I guess, you know, I'm probably glossing over a lot of my childhood <laughs> memories of camping. <laughs> but I think I am somebody, like, I'm kind of a strange bird because I love weather. So even for me, in a storm, it's very wild and real and raw. And so I I like, you know, I think as a child, I'd be kind of excited about the thunderstorm. Okay. Or, um, but I'm I'm sure there were some cold adventures where I was not happy. I yeah. just probably block them out of my memory because <laughs> <laughs> i'm a little bit torn of like okay obviously i want to make each adventure as fun and comfortable as possible but at a certain point she's gonna have to get you know you have to get used to those times where it's not necessarily the most fun uh it, during the moment because you know sometimes the the best memories you have were yeah in the moment pretty pretty miserable like if you're on a long hike or a long run and you're just feeling like garbage but then like you know three years later you're still talking about it with your friends you know um so i guess i think that yeah that's part of i guess i think that's kind of all balled together part of adventure is that it's the unknown and you don't really know and it might be really uncomfortable but to try to minimize it for sure yeah i mean i think that teaches kids a valuable lesson that you're gonna have to endure um you know some un some discomfort sometimes to really get to things that you really want. And I think that's a valuable lesson for in the world, in the real world. right? (laughs) Definitely. But I guess. And endurance sports and all that. Yeah. Probably not for two year olds though. I'm guessing. I might have to wait. I might have to wait till like 10. I'm guessing, you know, you don't want teens. Yeah. Cause teens would just be like, (laughs) teens would just be like, what are you doing? Dad. And yeah, avoid the rain, I guess, and take a lot of warm clothes, yeah. lots of food, yeah. all, right, <laughs> all um, the amenities that a, that a child needs. Yeah, I mean, we leave the house and it looks like we just packed up, like, half of everything we own, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, great. Are they camping? You camping with your kids? We've, we've, we started, we camped with Harper when she was, like, I want to say, like, six or seven, no, Probably like five months, I would say. Um, yeah. And then we've camped off and on a few times. But one time, it was like, it was, forecast was just rain all weekend. And I already had paid for the campsite for like three days. And so we decided, maybe maybe it won't rain. And we drove all the way up to the mountains, an hour and a half. I set up the tent in pouring rain. And wow. And I leave, well, and so it's all set up. Lindsay, our friend, Natalie, and Harp, baby Harper, not baby Harper, but like nine months old Harper, they're sitting in the tent. There's like water just built up on the bottom. And I'm like, the only way I'm surviving this is if I get a pizza. So I drive out and I look for pizza somewhere by the campground and I can't find it anywhere. Yeah. And I get back and Lindsay and her friends, the, let's just say two bottles of wine were almost gone at that point because <laughs> they had a different coping me- mechanism for surviving the camp night. It's very opportunistic. It is, right? And that is look at them like, we can't do this. So we packed up the tent in mud and stuff and drove an hour and a half home and bought pizza at home. So I guess, <laughs> so, you know, we were smart about yeah. it, but uh, yeah. So next, there are certain times you just have to call it. Yeah. yeah. Next, sure. next yeah. spring for sure. We're going to take them camping and stuff, but uh but yeah, yeah, so anyways, I wanted to get into stage races for you because once again, 
hanging out with you, it was the first time I heard the word ultra marathon and the first time I heard the word stage race. So can you explain what a uh, stage race is? Yeah. So stage race is essentially now they're pretty much placed in different categories. Most of okay. them, I think, then ultra marathons. Ultra marathons are typically like, you know, anything over 50K, 50K, 50 mile, 100 mile. The, uh, however, there are longer stage races, like the Marathon de Salva, that is, I would say, definitely considered one of the premier ultra marathon events okay. um, in the world. Is that 200? The stage race is essentially, oh, sorry. Sorry, is Mar- Marathon de Sable, is that like 250K? Marathon de Sable, I believe, is six days, and it's, <laughs> I believe it's, 200, it's 250K. There's actually a, a 50 miler okay. day. Oh my gosh! Um, on that, most most of the stage races that I'm familiar with, I mean, I'm familiar with Marathon de Sable, definitely on my bucket list. I've the ones I've done um, quite a bit of are more in the hundred k to hundred and ten k, and that's four to five days of you know it's a multi day running event. Each stage is a different distance and a variety of terrain and challenges. And so, um, you know, you have, they're now actually popping up all over the world. When I started doing stage races, I was sticking to the Sahara desert and I didn't know of that many outside of, um, you know, the Sahara or sort of the desert stage races. I knew of the marathon de Salva, but now it's really becoming quite popular to do destination stage races. And I think, you know, they really attract both, recreational um, and elite runners and even professionals because a lot of the stage races actually um, grant points for the ultra trail Mont Blanc, which is a, you know, very prestigious. Oh yeah. Ultra ma- it's or like ultra the Super Bowl. Event. Yeah, exactly. So I think a lot of people don't realize that these other stage races are, are more than just a travel experience. I mean, obviously amazing from a touristic running standpoint, you're, you're basically, um, you know, traveling through another country and getting to, and some of them are really good about mixing in with the culture and actually giving back in some ways, which is very inspiring. You know, I know some events, um, you know, help with water and improving the water in the area. There are some events that make sure, you know, they do donations of food and clothing to, you know, culture and whatever the, um, people in the area where they're traveling through, I think that's always nice um, to not just be impacting the race in a negative way. They're trying yeah. to give back positively. So I think that that's what draws me into these kind of races is that they're really, it's a multi-day event. You really bond with the people you're sort of traveling through with because you get more than just one day together. And I think you really get more of a slice of um, the environment and absolutely a lot more intimate experience with the terrain. So that's basically, you know, stage race. And so I think most stage races, even the shorter ones have usually a marathon stage. So that in of itself is a huge feat for a lot of people. Yeah. You're also running multi-day, you know, back-to-back days. So getting your legs ready for that is a different endeavor than, training endeavor than it is for just a single go or a single day event obviously yeah how did yeah. You, how did you hear about this again um just needing to travel and needing to get back to a different aspect of running than i'd done before i'd only done you know road marathons and just a handful of trail marathons and it was after graduate school it was like i have time to get back to 
some real exploration and running and just started researching it. And I came across, of course, you know, the Sahara Desert just sounded totally crazy. So I had to do it. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, so just sounded, and you know, yeah. And it, and it was really crazy, just a new challenge to train for and um, with travel experience, absolutely. So you... Did you go out there with friends or did you go out by yourself? Because I know it's, I know, I remember you explaining that it's very international where a lot of the people there really don't even speak English. So it might be hard to form somewhat right. bonds around the campfire at night or. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my first experience was with this Italian based company called Zidaway and they still do quite a few stage races. Um, they don't do the Sahara Desert. They haven't done it in the last couple of years because of political turmoil yeah. in the okay. area, but um, in, Tunis- in Tunisia. But um, absolutely, there was there were just a handful of Americans. I think there were five or six of us. And um, but you know, international in the sense that a lot of Europeans and a lot of other countries, English is sort of a bridging language. So oh, yeah. you are meeting people from other countries and able to communicate on some level and even if you're not you're still sharing this beautiful experience even if you don't you know share a language um i think you share the language of running so that's ser- seriously <laughs> as as that sounds i think it really is it's, to bring a lot it's, of people together on an international level it's not cheesy at all like i've had deep conversations with people that i've only met you know for one day while i've been running some ultra marathon or something yeah you know because you're running at a slow enough pace that you can actually talk and then you're like right shit i got five hours to kill here (laughs) absolutely i mean so many of my best connections and friends internationally i would say all of them have come from running actually and it just continues to grow you know the friendships and um and i think there's a really a willingness that i've seen to maintain the, that kind of international connection and keep up with people and now with social media I mean when I started doing these races I remember my friends had to follow they had to log into some janky link to see how I was doing and if I was still alive in the Sahara <laughs> Desert you know we didn't have social media yeah so, so so what we didn't have a way to to communicate when we were out there I think you had like two minutes on some satellite phone if you had an emergency to call home wow that was what we had yeah. Now I hate to keep coming back to it, but did your mom know you were doing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My mom knew. She definitely knew about this one. <laughs> she's I like, can't, I can't contact her for seven days while she's yeah. in the Sahara Desert. <laughs> I think as luck would have it, she'd recently retired and had our, you know, have had just started figuring out that they had some adventures to go travel for. So it was good timing. <laughs> That's right. That's right. She goes on adventures all the time. You should be worried about her, maybe. I don't know. I know. <laughs> um, okay, so can you just like sort of paint the picture of what a typical day would be like? Uh, maybe yeah. for the Sahara one, because I want to get to Iceland in a second, but the Sahara one um, probably was a bit different, I have a feeling. Yeah, in the Sahara, so that race typically is what I loved about that race and I kept going back for was that it really was a nomadic adventure sort of a across the desert because you really are camping and the marathon de sablo is the same way you, the difference is you carry all your own gear and food and that's an intense event <laughs> but this the the one i did um 
in the Tunisian Sahara Desert, which is 100K, um, was 100K, was very well supported, you know, Italian company. So they, you are, you know, they are preparing all your meals and they have their food trucks, but you're ba- essentially like caravanning across the desert together and you're sleeping under Burberry tents. So you essentially run to your camp each day. <laughs> and so I, I believe like the first day it was 13 miles and, um, and you, you know, so the first night you're sleeping under this burlap Burberry tent in the middle of the Sahara desert and you, and, you know, I think when people think about the Sahara race, they sort of just envision, like, deep dunes the entire yeah. way. But the Saharan desert is not like that. It's quite varied terrain. I mean, you get you get some rocky trails, and you get some hilly areas where you're running up sort of a packed sand, rocky path. And then you get more of your, like, soft sand that's a little bit more packed. And then you have your deep dunes. So they're, you know, basically that race, the way they used to structure it, was more packed rocky sand and sort of progressively getting deeper deeper into the sand dunes by the end of the race so the last day of the event you was the the last 10k is all deeper sand dunes up and down the dunes and um, running for an oasis in the middle of the desert so it was really just an amazing experience wow and that my first year it actually hailed on us on that day so that was the other surprise like the weather yeah, it was so unpredictable. Um, but thank God for the hail because it made the sand dunes a lot easier to negotiate. <laughs> I thought. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And you end out Again, an oasis. Bring on the weather. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there you go. So you end out an oasis. Yeah. So an oasis, meaning um, you know, you have the like you're in the middle of dunes, and then suddenly there's a water source, and so there are you know I forget the name of the trees that 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 populate that area but it's you know a village surrounded with trees and that's their water source and there's a hot spring there and whoa um the name slips my mind right now but there's definitely a name for that small little village in the middle of these sand you know in the middle of the desert it's beautiful that's cr- beautiful you're really out there it's very rustic yeah yeah so what what do the people in that town do if i was them i would just be jumping in the hot springs and swimming around in the <laughs> oasis you know um <laughs> I feel like I could probably have educated myself more on what... <laughs> You're too tired. Like, I think that there... Well, no, there's subsistence. You know, I think there's a little bit of tourism in that town that comes through. Um, you know, I don't... I mean, I think they probably end up having to travel for part of their... They're, they're also nomadic themselves, so they probably go back to their village, but they're traveling off periodically, too, to find their own resources of water and food <laughs> but you know they're raising they have camels and they're raising some live you know not really livestock but they do have goats they're they're you know villages with goats so they're they have a way to feed themselves and all of that and they have their arts and crafts that they're probably traveling to sell i imagine okay yeah. cool so how many years did you do that race because it was quite a few right yeah, I did that race five years as a three years of participant, and then I started doing being the on-site physical therapist for that race wow. um, back in 2009. So with my little clinic uh, in a Burberry tent and a table on the sand, great. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And you got our aunt to do it, um, Aunt Chris. Yeah, I did. Second, dude, yeah. second mention of Aunt Chris on this podcast, so... <laughs> 
Yeah, shout out to Anne Chris. She did so well. I was so impressed with her. She yeah. was um everyone thought she was about twenty years younger than she really is and she ran really strong and just um I mean really it's a tough event, so I think she I was impressed with how well she did. <laughs> she did really well. That's and awesome. also, you know, Anne Chris is like I don't think I've ever heard her complain about anything. Yeah. And this is a race that, like, definitely pushes you to the point where probably, you know, there's you're cursing at some moments. So at some I sand never dunes. saw that from <laughs> <laughs> yeah. me. But meanwhile, as you're doing this, I was, you know, in football and all these sports where you're not doing long-distance running. And I always kind of considered this insane, but I also wanted to join really badly i was like yeah oh, man that sounds like something i definitely want to do um and so it's still it's still on my bucket list to do one of these maybe not one in the sahara but oh so yeah that's what i wanted to ask you about i'm signed up for a race in the desert in march and yeah i guess what i'm gonna what i feel like i'm gonna struggle with is the whole idea of the landscape not changing for hours right so yeah. how, how do you deal with that mentally? I think um, if your landscape doesn't change and you sort of need to pick um, ways to break down the race mentally, I think um, okay. I would pick, you know, that's what I would tend to do is break it down in terms of the way you're going to run it. Or if you've sort of like clicked on to a certain pacing group, the way you're going to run with them and, or, you know, allow yourself to be conversation level for part of it and converse with somebody. I would break, I mean, I, I do well when I break races down mentally into four stages. That's just my choice. Like, okay. Okay. I'm going to really like the first fourth is kind of find your pace, find your breath, let your mind kind of wander, just get into it, you know? And I mean, I think the landscape, as much as it probably seems like super mundane and then it doesn't change, there probably will be some change. There always is some variation in, in even desert landscape, I think, you know. Okay. There's going to be something that changes. Then I would, you know, I would break it down, second stage, start kind of pushing yourself. Try to stay with that next runner that's kind of pushing you and see if you can strike up a conversation for a little bit. That's how I would do it. And then maybe the third stage, say it's a marathon, so you break that down into six or seven miles each, which isn't that that's not too crazy to wrap your head around, you know, Yeah. an hour or so of running, depending on the terrain. Um, then I would, you know, take the third one and think about, okay, I'm going to think about my, what's going on in my body. What, what, how does my foot feel landing on the sand? Am I like, you know, just check in with your body. How, what can you do to kind of relax areas that are starting to tighten up and you're getting tired? Cause you're going to get, the thing about the sand is that, maintaining your running form and really feeling efficient is a pretty constant challenge. So I think instead of thinking about that the entire time, try to maybe save yourself <laughs> the agony of being like, this is so hard the whole time and pick a chunk of the race to think about, okay, now I'm going to check in with my form and try to stay light on my feet. And maybe if I change my foot strike this way, I can be more efficient. I really found like in the Sahara, you are so intimate with the sand that you know how efficiently your foot pushes across 
uh, even more hard packed or soft packed as, as opposed to dune, and you start learning that how you can change your running pattern to be a little bit more efficient. I think, um, and that that's just something that probably is a little bit individual. Okay. You know, I mean, I think that that helps mentally. And then the last fourth, just enjoy it, push yourself, see if you can catch some people. That would that would be how I would break it down mentally, just focusing on different aspects throughout the race. That's great. Yeah. I need to, I'll like write it down on my hand or something to break it down <laughs> so I can remember that in the middle of the last, yeah. th- the last fourth when I'm just, you know, struggling. Because uh, just... I do think, I remember like the marathon day always in the Sahara, you start running it and you're tired and the sand is tough and like, I really have 26 miles of this, you know, <laughs> you've got to break it down mentally or you're going to start um, just fighting yourself, I think. Yeah. yeah. So how did you train for this, for all these events? Yeah. So I learned the strategy that I kind of grew into just training myself. And then I trained other people with is, um, you know, think about the race you're trying to accomplish. So if you're running four or five days back to back for the race and you have different terrain and different distances, structure your training program so that you build to match each of those different days of the race and you don't ever just like a marathon you don't need to ever do the entire distance of you know i don't think it's necessary to do like for a marathon you don't absolutely have to train up to 26 miles it's sufficient to do up to 80 percent of that mileage in one go right so same thing with the stage race in one week you build your training to get up to that running volume you know, give yourself enough time, look at your base mileage and get up to that volume and space out your running days in the beginning of your program and then start pushing days together. And I think I really believe in varying intensities in running. I don't, I don't believe that running the same intensity, the same pace, the same distance every day does you any good. I think you need to vary your runs and vary your terrain and see if you can find, um, Try to match the terrain somehow you're going to be running. So, like, if you're training for a desert race, are you going to are you training in the snow this winter? You know, snow <laughs> is a great strategy. Find a beach somewhere. Find okay. a soft surface, you know. Yeah. Um, that's a good strategy. And just, I think um, hill repeats are a really good strategy to work on power and, up, you know, powering up hills because you're going to be trying to power up in the sand. I don't know where you're running. It's probably a little bit more flat, it sounds like. But I think so. Really like, say somebody is doing, like, a three-month training program, then we'd look at the base mileage, look at how much we need to, um, you know, how much we've increased that volume to get to 80% of the volume of the stage race. Do okay. you have enough time to do that? If you don't have enough time, then you do a run-walk strategy because I, I tend to extrapolate that 10% rule with running to try to not increase mileage more than 10% per week, which a lot of, you know, if you're a really strong runner, a lot of people can handle more than 10% increase. But I, when I'm I'm training somebody else, I, I don't try, I try not to go more than that. So then, okay, they, if somebody has time to run four days a week, then plan out those runs and space them out give yourself a rest day in between and really have those be strategy strategized workouts. Don't just do garbage mileage, you know, increase those strategically. And then over the course of three months, you up the volume, you, you vary your intensity and you target, you know, you make sure 
you've really got a, some good long runs that you feel confident about back-to-back in there. Okay. And then I think it's important to structure recovery weeks because I think a lot of people have a tendency to overtrain, me included. So <laughs> I made that mistake. I really think structuring in, um, you know, train, build, build, build for three, three or four weeks and then back off for a week. Okay. And then get back in and start building again. That's how I tend to train. Yeah. Okay. And adding in some strength training, some plyometrics and core work is is only going to help, you know. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Wow, I got I my whole training that. plan right there. I got a, yeah, there you go. <laughs> got laid out in front of me. Sweet. So how do you how did how do you recover from these events? Well, if I'm, it depends on where I'm traveling, but um, if they have good beer or wine in the area, that'd be the first thing I would do. Well, you got to rehydrate. <laughs> you have to rehydrate. Yeah, rehydrate with a beer. No. Um, okay. Yeah. So wait, hold on, real quick. What has a what has better beer and wine, the Sahara or Iceland? Yeah, definitely Iceland. Okay, that's what I thought. I wasn't sure, but... <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, how else um, do you... Well, Iceland has, they have their, um, their infamous, I think it's a shot of... Oh, no, the infamous, um, it's like shark, some shark delicatessen. If you can take that with a shot, or without a shot, then you're really in. So, anyway. Is it like the... The yeah. fermented shark. Fermented shark, yes. Correct. Oh, that's been <laughs> rotting for a couple of weeks. Oh. Yeah, exactly. So, and then I just think, um, I mean, I think probably a professional and elite and a recreational runner have completely different plans for recovery because the pros are going to probably have another race line, lined up. So, you know, they take a lot less time to recover. So that's, again, I mean, um, I think individualizing all of that, it just depends on the runner, but I think it still takes a lot out of people. I think you need at least two weeks. Yeah. You know, oh, for sure. To recover. And at least like, if you're going to do, for, I would say the average person to turn around and do another race, I would wait at least a month. Okay. But a lot of people wait, they're like in shape or they use it as a training event. So it just really depends on the person and how they know their body. But I would, if I were training somebody who was, more of a recreational runner and then i that would be my recommendation wait at least a month yeah that's awesome so um and it just depends on if people are more prone to injuries if they if they you know recently recovered from an injury if they kind of fought one off to do the race um or one came up during the race then absolutely you need to take time and cross train afterwards okay yep so when you went, you ended up, cha- I, I don't know if it, is it the same company that did the Sahara and Iceland? Um, did they just kind of transfer? No, two different companies. Oh, it is? Okay, yeah, cool. Two different so mm-hmm. how, did you, how did you get involved with the, the company that did the Iceland stage race? Um, I got involved because I was contacted through just word of mouth from um, the previous company and just... Um, you know, after having lived in Italy and speaking the language, because they're also an Italian company, I think that it was basically through connections okay. with that and my experience in the Sahara Desert, because they didn't have a physical therapist going to their race in the, in the Sahara Desert until, you know, I sort of proposed that as a potential um, option for them. And then it became something that the runners were really happy to have. So it just seems, you know, so obvious yeah. that they should 
an on-site physical therapist to do stretching, massage, and taping, and consultation. Yeah. So are you so. doing the event? And, and when you're doing the Iceland event, are you actually running that day and then right afterwards setting up shop? Or how do, how do you work I that out? I have done that. Okay. I have done that. It's been a lot busier in recent years um, where my schedule to, you know, or the ability to run and treat people well and really be there for people is just too much. And now I'll, I'll sleep their events. I'll help. I help sleep and check safety on the course okay. and set the course and make sure everybody's okay. So I'm out there on the course. I'm just not racing. Gotcha. So for people who don't know, sweeping the race is you go at, at after everybody and you pick up the flags and the markers, right? Right. Okay. Right. And do you, are you the person that catches people and tells them they ran out of time <laughs> or do they have those in the stage guess, race? Yeah. In some cases I would be. Yeah. Okay. Has that um, happened but, before? Or? Um, I know it's actually, so the, this, the Iceland company run Iceland.org actually excellent organization. They do other stage races, um, in Baja. Yeah. Um, you should check it out. Coming in April. It looks amazing. Yeah. It looks amazing. Baja, I will right, hopefully be there in Baja this year. Um, they do a fantastic job. I'm so impressed with them. They, um, they're really good. So they're actually stay back and end up checking on them and okay. usually send me forward. Yeah. Gotcha. To go start doing physical therapy. Okay. So. I see. Cause usually, you know, in, in, I guess day long ultras, there's usually a time cut off. And if you don't make the time cut off to a certain mileage, they'll, they'll kind of force you to end your day, I guess. Um, yeah, exactly. Which I feel That's like true. would be very stressful if you, you know, if you're fighting the time cutoffs. I just, I think that would be a very stressful way to run a race. You know, you couldn't get yeah. in, in the zone of relaxing and enjoying it and then being like, oh crap, I'm two minutes ahead of schedule. But yeah, they're really, and it is a lot of, it's a logistical challenge for these organizations. I mean, they've got to get everybody to the right place. They've got to watch safety. They've got to, you know, got to get so. If someone is right on the cost, like let's say for the marathon stage, they'll probably talk to them beforehand and they have an option to do the half marathon. Okay. Um, so it's usually just the, it's usually the, you know, the tail end of the group. It's yeah. not usually a really extreme cutoff, um, I think. So gotcha. it's very, it's generous usually. <laughs> so yeah. the run Iceland one seems kind of like a big tourist event, not tourist event in a bad way, but like you're touring around the country as you're running. Right. So is there more like you finish the race in the morning or around early afternoon and then is there events you guys do all day or. Yeah, absolutely. They offer up their optional course. Some of them, actually some, they keep the group together if it's en route, you know, to the next stop or the next night stay. And now they only stay in two different locations, which is Reykjavik and then a village in Vik, Iceland, which is a beautiful place. Um, so they, you know, they do have a touristic day on the way to Vik. And then other things, you know, after the stages, while you're staying in Vik, they offer up, you know, cave tours, glacial tours, just learning about the region, you know, and then, yeah, so some of it is optional, but they do an excellent job of offering touristic excursions, I think, for, and I think it's 
reasonable to the extent that you're not totally exhausting yourself. Like, yeah, <laughs> that was going to be my next question. And that's your choice. Um, yeah. So that's awesome. I really, uh, I keep saying that I'm going to join you. And last year I thought I was. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then. No, I mean, that's, yeah, understandable. Yeah, having a baby. Yeah, you know, having a baby around the same time. Very important. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So very important. Like, maybe sometime you can bring the family. That's what I was thinking. I'll strap her to, like, I'll put her in the backpack on my back and just start running, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Over volcanoes. That's safe, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, that's awesome. So, real quick, this year. The the main guy who was there, and I think he won it, is Jason Schlarb, who... Yeah, Jason Schlarb. Yep. He was fresh off of winning my favorite race of all time, which is the Hard Rock 100 out here in Colorado. Um, yeah. Did you get a chance to talk to him or hear about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Or, yeah? Yep, he... Um, I did talk to him quite a bit. Um, yeah, he's an impressive person, very humble, obviously very focused, Um it's clear he is loves you know he's really about the ultra running and the longer events and just really loves being out in the wilderness i think and he i mean it's very impressive he just continues to grow i think as an ultra runner and he's really um a big name you know he was just on a very strong team at marathon de sable this year he won hard rock he just he's got a film production going um Schlarb, whoop, productions and they just put out a their new film called skiing the hard rock where they stay oh i didn't know miles. i didn't know he was and on that that's cool i yeah. heard about that that's pretty yeah. amazing his family is beautiful his wife and his son were along for in iceland and so he got to know them a bit and you know felix his son and maggie his wife and they're just a very um you're going to tell very positive people and just, I mean, very much supporting other runners and he, yeah, he's a strong, I think he's going to be um, someone to contend with for a while. He just gets stronger and stronger and he's really focused and um, amazing. I think it was, you know, um, quite ambitious for him to be at Iceland because he had just done the hard rock and then he had <laughs> just been at ultra trail Mont Blanc like two weeks earlier. Whoa. So I think, um, he, you know, I think it was a push, but he still came out in first and, and, um, and definitely, you know, came to me with a couple of questions about, you know, his hip and a couple of things. So yeah. I think one thing I've learned and I do need to write about this is I've noticed just with myself and other runners, when you start logging a lot of miles, um, I've noticed a, a correlation between plantar fasciitis or heel pain and tight tightness in the hips and you know there were a couple people and jason maybe one of them that you know was having some hip tightness and some heel pain and i think there's a definite correlation there with hip tightness and the way your foot hits the ground so we had some discussions about that okay yeah he's a wonderful person i hope he i think he's going to continue to dominate for a while that's awesome so yeah Earlier, you mentioned not following your own advice in recovery. Do you, is there, as a physical therapist, I feel like it would drive me insane knowing, you know, oh, my muscles tweaked. I know I need to rest this. I would tell people to rest this, but as a runner, you don't want to rest. So, do you do that? Yeah. 
I've gotten so much better at resting, and I think it's partially as I'm getting older. I can't just, um, you know, I think we're. I think as you age, recovery becomes a lot more important. You know, I'm definitely not at the level I was ten years ago, and I, you know, it would take a lot of um, different kind of focus for me to get back there. I, I just accepted that, but I think that, yeah, I think. If you want to increase the years of running, it's really important to listen to either find ways to prevent injury or just stop them in their tracks. And I think most runner, every ultra runner is going to have something at some point. And they're usually soft tissue injuries, you know? Yeah. I mean, just because we're not 100% symmetrical beings, even though we try to train ourselves to be and running is a symmetrical rhythmic activity. So there's going to be some muscle imbalance that's going to fall out and downstream problems at some point. And I think you just have to stop and recover and address it, figure out what's going on at that stage. So I've gotten a lot better at that. Absolutely. I don't really get injured anymore, but I'm also not racing that much anymore. So gotcha. um, it's different. Yeah, I'm on the other side of the spectrum. Now. Hey. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um okay and then this is the last thing my wife really wanted to know this um what's your favorite muscle as a physical therapist <laughs> my favorite muscle that is awesome question oh, everybody wow. has one right if you're a physical therapist you gotta have a favorite muscle yeah that's a really good question um <laughs> You know, no, it's a hard question, actually. i got to think about this for a second. I don't even know You know, I think, yeah. Well, there are some funny ones that are that strike me as, like, you know, part of evolution that have really just, but I don't, I don't know if people, you know, like the plantaris is kind of a funny muscle. <laughs> you have to be, like, a super nerd uh, to understand these ones? Like a yeah, super physical yeah. therapist nerd? <laughs> I'd say, as a runner, it's probably quadriceps. Just because, I mean, I think, yeah, it's got to be the quads. I mean, though, I feel like there's so much that the quads do for you without your quads. I mean, running would be just impossible. <laughs> It'd be impossible with a lot of other muscles, but, yeah, you know, and a lot of things. So, yeah, I'm going to go with the quadriceps. Sweet, yeah. sweet. Great choice. <laughs> um. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on uh, the podcast, and you know, I I feel every time I talk to you, I'm like, man, I should call her like at least once a month and just get free advice on all this stuff. Oh, well, thank you for that. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm Um, here for you anytime. All right, sweet. Let's go. Let's go run some adventure sometime together. That's what I was gonna say. Are you doing the North Face challenge this year? You know, I wasn't going to, but I, I might have to. Oh, there you go. That's <laughs> how easy it is to talk you into it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I think I'll just have to – I just need to figure out which distance I want to do. But it's hard not to. It's such a great race. Oh, yeah. It, so. I definitely want to come out and join you for that some uh, – maybe not this year because I haven't committed to it yet, but uh, next year, you know. Yeah. Sounds great. Like a great well, race, we'll figure so. something out. All right. Sounds yeah. good. Well, it was great talking to you, and – I will talk to you sometime soon. Okay, thanks so much, Chris. Have yeah. a great day. Yeah, you too. Bye. Okay. Bye. There you have it. That is the podcast for the week. Seven weeks in a row. I'm on a streak. I'm keeping this up all year long. Hopefully, you guys keep tuning in. I have some awesome guests lined up. 
I will be catching up with some old guests. For instance, Calvin Johansson just finished his 100 Mountains in 100 Days, and I am planning on hearing about the rest of them. He left us on a cliffhanger, literally. <laughs> so I'm hoping to catch up with him soon. Um, so tune in for that. I don't know when that'll be, a couple weeks probably. But, uh, but yeah, keep listening. Thank you for supporting this. This is awesome. You can always go on iTunes and subscribe. You can leave reviews. You can follow me on Facebook. I just started a Like a Bigfoot Facebook page, um, and I need to do a better job at posting on that. <laughs> but I'll probably be posting things daily, just links I find that are inspiring to me. Um, and then, you know, if you have any questions about the podcast or anything you want me to address, feel free to comment or send me, send me a message on there or comment on the website, which is new dot like a bigfoot dot com new N E W <laughs> not something else, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, feel free to check that out. I need to change it to www. I just need to take about 10 minutes out of my day to learn how to do that. And that'll be done. But uh, anyways, yeah, thanks for tuning in. I look forward to chatting with you guys next week.